Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by the SATC Solutions Center. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bridging Chicago. I'm Savannah Roundtree, the law clerk here at SATC, and joining us here today, we have Nancy Hughes-Moyer. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Nancy is currently the president and CEO of Volunteers of America, Illinois, and they're doing some really exciting things in Inglewood right now. But first, I want to back up a little bit and... I saw that you are a graduate of Loyola University, uh, which is exciting. I uh, go to law school there currently, so I always like to see uh, alumni. Um, You have a BS degree in social work, so are you a... Technically BSW, (laughs) bachelor's in social work. Oh, bachelor's in social work. Okay, I was just looking at your resume. That makes more sense. And it definitely sounds better. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I saw that and I was like, what? How would you get a bachelor's of science in social work? But a bachelor's in social work makes a lot more sense for that. Um, and you also have a master's of arts from the School of Social Work at Aurora University. Correct. Often referred to as an MSW. Okay. And um, so those are Chicago schools. Are you a Chicago local? I am not only a Chicago local, I am probably about fifth generation Chicago on both sides of my family. Really? Yeah, kind of a long history of uh, Chicago firemen and Chicago policemen. Okay, yeah. Uh, My mom's side policemen, my dad's side uh, firemen. Mm -hmm. So I am, Chicago is deep in my DNA. Yeah, it seems like for a lot of those like multi-generation Chicago families, a lot of them are like firemen, policemen. It's just like interesting. I don't know what really brings that about, but it's interesting. Well, I think my family happens to be Southside Irish, and so okay. they really sort of took root, particularly in the fire department. So yeah. uh, I think that's why when you get when you sort of see a lot of folks from the South Side who happen to be Irish, you will mm-hmm. undoubtedly find uh, some of their relatives at least a generation or two back that that spent some yeah. time on the uh, Chicago fire department. One of our fellow attorneys is Southside Irish with a lot of firemen in her family, so uh, we'll have to talk later and see yeah, if right, you absolutely. guys are related. Well, in, in the interest of uh, full disclosure, technically speaking. Even though we say south side of Chicago, we were we were just outside the Chicago boundaries. I grew up in Oak Lawn, okay, uh, which is kind of just a little bit farther south of Mount Greenwood. But we could mm-hmm. see the Sears Tower from our okay. bedroom window, <laughs> so we considered ourselves as being on the south side of sure. Chicago. <laughs> um, you always have to give that disclaimer. <laughs> Absolutely. So growing up in this family rooted in sort of social services, did that inspire you to go into social work? I think my parents, more than anything else, inspired me to go uh, into social work. Both of my parents were extremely Mm civic-minded people, uh, this sort of tremendous sense of social justice and social responsibility before people even started talking about Mm -hmm. that. Uh, Both my parents, you know, my mother was technically speaking a homemaker and my dad was in corporate America, but they were both very involved in volunteer activities, whether it was through church and community groups. And, uh, you know, they understood this, again, this concept of social justice before most people had ever even heard of those words. Mm -hmm. And so I was really exposed early on in my life 
uh, to kids who were removed from their homes because of abuse and neglect and were in DCFS and people who were in shelters and people who were homeless and Mm -hmm. people that, you know, really lived on the margins and were struggling. And so uh, that that really got rooted in my consciousness uh, at a very early age. And uh, honestly, I, I never even considered a career in anything else. Really? Um, I mean, I think that there was a little while I actually did consider being a lawyer from mm-hmm. a social justice perspective. Yeah. Um, uh, but then as I really got uh, sort of towards the end of high school and I understood what social work was really about, mm-hmm. uh, I decided I think that was really where I wanted to invest my time yeah. and wow, energy. That's, um, I don't know if I even really knew what a social worker was when I was in high school, so it's really incredible. So your parents, were they... I guess they were taking you to their volunteering efforts like throughout your childhood, and so you're really... Absolutely, and I became a volunteer Mm -hmm, uh, uh, very early. I mean, I would say by junior high, I was like a professional volunteer at different, you know, (laughs) places. I mean, whether it was nursing homes or shelters or uh, things like that. Um, And and so, uh, again, it was really uh, part of... Uh, my experience, my daily almost experience mm-hmm. of life and understanding that, you know, kind of to whom much is given, much is expected. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that was a tremendous gift that my parents uh, gave to me was a realization that you mm-hmm. can't take anything for granted. Right. And that what you might have been blessed with is not something other people may have been blessed with. And when you have it, you have an obligation to try mm-hmm. and lift others up. And that's yeah. what I've tried to do. Great. It's great to see that ambition for working towards others to have it at such a young age, and you were able to really capitalize on that and go to school for that. Um, after you received your bachelor's degree in social work, were you immediately in social work? Were you working with a, uh, at the same time? What were you doing? So the great thing actually about when you get your undergraduate degree in social work mm-hmm. is that there's these really intense internship requirements. So you're really right. doing the work mm-hmm. uh, even while you're in college. Yeah. And then I also... I worked full time all through college, and I was working in residential programs and things wow. like that. So I don't. I actually can't say there was a time in my life I wasn't. I don't feel like I mm-hmm. like I wasn't in social work. Uh, but after getting my undergraduate degree, I started working officially, I guess you could say, right away in social mm-hmm. work. And then a few years later, uh, I got my master's degree. Yeah. So I never really felt like I was not in it, and then mm-hmm. got in it. Uh, yeah, really, it, everything was just sort of an extension of the thing before. Yeah, it seems like social work isn't the type of degree where you're like just in school and then they just sort of like throw you into a oh, job. Oh yeah, even to even be... in your master's degree program because we have a lot of interns. It's a, you know, unlike a lot of other graduate degrees in social work, they really want you to understand. Mm-hmm what you're getting into. So for both undergraduate and graduate work, you're doing a pretty heavy lift mm-hmm. in terms of an internship. Yeah. So what's it like balancing that? I mean, I know social work has got to be a really emotional investment as well. So what's it like balancing that as sort of a young adult going to school, you know, um, you're out on your own trying to go to the classes and stuff and balancing, you know, this um, hard emotional work as well? You know, I guess I don't, I don't know that I ever really consciously stop to think about how you create that balance. I probably mm-hmm. thought more about it as an employer and as I've yeah. been a supervisor and a manager and employer in terms of how do you help folks create that balance. Um, you know, again, for me, I go back to I had spectacular role models in right. my parents, uh, and that was really a guide star for me in terms of it was, it was the work mm-hmm. that kept me motivated and energized. 
Um, and uh, again, I had great family, I had great friends, and so those were obviously wonderful outlets for me. And I just cared so much about the work that the passion uh, became its own motivator and its own outlet. Um, obviously, I, I, you know, I, I have spent, I won't say how many years, right, and <laughs> give away my age, but a lot of years trying to lead people mm-hmm. uh, in that work. And I do see more of the impact of what we often refer to as vicarious trauma, Mm -hmm. which is people who get traumatized themselves by being so constantly immersed and so intensively immersed in other people's trauma. Sounds like for you, um, because you had such good role models um, in your parents and your whole life, you'd been volunteering work. It was just more of like, this is how you live your life. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so you get used to it. Um, what sort of things have you um, learned to help your employees manage this uh, vicarious trauma? Yeah, and I, vicar- vicarious trauma is sort of a newer understanding of the concept. Mm-hmm. What people probably heard it referred to before is people getting really burnt out. Right. Uh, but vicarious trauma is actually far more accurate and much more descriptive. Mm-hmm. And so we really we do try and focus on creating um, lots of outlets for people to really understand and celebrate the impact of their work. And I think that's so important because when you're in the field of social work and the helping profession, these are not Hallmark movies, right? And they're not right. like, you know, sappy little sitcoms that, you know, you have a problem and they get wrapped up in 30 minutes. Um, you know, a lot of times the real successes can seem few and far between. Mm-hmm. And so um, creating Uh, systems and rituals so that people can really take stock of the impact that they're having is incredibly important because sometimes that in and of itself uh, can can help lighten the load uh, Mm -hmm. of what feels like an incredibly heavy lift if you can actually begin to see and bring into your conscious awareness that well I really this plotting you know day after day and sort of the grinding Mm -hmm. uh, I, I actually now that I look back and we have this conversation and we're talking about this impact story, I can really see that my work's making a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say in social work, uh, really getting your head around and being able to celebrate mm-hmm. the impact of your work is akin to winning in sports, right? right. They say the best sort of <laughs> antidote to bad morale in like sports is winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in social work, it's really about being able to see mm-hmm. uh, and, and understand Uh, and kind of revel in your impact. Um, And that takes a certain amount of skill for the people managing and supervising and leading because, again, the the sort of containers of that impact are not always easy to see. Sometimes you have to draw it. Um, And so never forgetting uh, to help people really connect uh, their actions and their efforts to the impact uh, is one thing. The second thing really is balance and Mm -hmm. self-care. And people... Uh, understanding when they're starting to feel mm-hmm. um, a bit burnt out and the supervisor, manager, leaders, mm-hmm. uh, being able to help them identify that and letting it be okay for them to take a little break and, and to get some distance. Mm-hmm. And I would say the third thing is you have to have a tremendous amount of self-awareness mm-hmm. when you're doing this work, yeah. right? This is not, and not to belittle selling insurance or you know being in retail, those are all obviously important and people-centered things. But um, when you are trying to lift other people out of a lot of trauma, mm-hmm. um, it can trigger some unresolved issues for yourself. Right. And um, even sometimes issues that you think you've resolved, <laughs> mm-hmm. you can find out that there's you know, uh, still some residue. And so you really have to be somebody who is both willing 
uh, and able to take your own inventory mm-hmm. uh, and to, you know, make sure you understand what are my triggers and how do I resolve that separate and distinct from what's going on with that client. So mm-hmm. I don't bring my stuff uh, into that because if you're dealing with your stuff in the same space that you're trying to deal with the other person's stuff, it can get unwieldy mm-hmm. really fast. And so self-awareness is key. Uh, to doing this work effectively. Yeah, because I was going to ask if um, that sort of self-awareness is difficult for social workers, sort of like how doctors make the worst patients, because if you're sort of embroiled in all of this, um, you know, the day-to-day, like, drudgery of these other people's traumas, you might be um, reticent to think that, you know, you have any problems. But it sounds like it takes really good management strategies to um, sort of initiate these, um, this sort of self-awareness protocols. Absolutely. So the work is very Mm -hmm. people-centered. The supervision and the management of it has to be extraordinarily Mm -hmm. people-centered because you you can't expect people to take good care of the people they're serving if they don't feel reasonably well taken care of uh, as kind of the helpers. Mm -hmm. So I know that eventually before um, going to Volunteers of America, you were the Vice President of General General Operations for Kids Hope United. So at some point you made a shift from um, social work, or like I'll say exclusively social work, to um, more nonprofit-centered um, work. So what was that like? Well, I wouldn't really call it necessarily a pivot, right? Mm-hmm. On paper and a resume, it might look like a little right. bit of I a pivot. I know you're still but, doing but a lot yes, of social Technically work. speaking, everything I've done um, mostly was in the nonprofit space, mm-hmm. right? Nonprofit, sort of the broad label mm-hmm. uh, of which all of these uh, different um, sort of populations and work can, can fall under. Um, and uh, while it's true that uh, my time at Kids Hope United, by the way, incidentally, they're called, their name has changed to One Hope United now. Okay. <laughs> they would want me to give them that plug. Um, a lot of my work there was really family type services and again, kids in child welfare and at-risk families. Mm-hmm. And when I moved from that role to become the CEO for VOA of Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, most of what VOA of Illinois was doing at that time was child welfare right, yeah. and, and really work with at-risk families. So uh, it wasn't a pivot. What really became a pivot was uh, my mandate when I became the leader of this organization was to significantly grow its mission and significantly grow the ministry. Mm -hmm. And so I really had to find a way to uh, develop new programs Mm -hmm. that the organization had never done before. And that required a fair amount of growth and -hmm. stretching on my part as well. And so that was really the pivot. It was all the family-based services, Mm -hmm. you know, and the child welfare type work I I knew well. Mm -hmm. Um, But doing things like the extensive continuum we have for veterans who are struggling in crisis Mm -hmm. and all the supportive housing and a lot of the community development work, that was relatively new. Right. Yeah. So um, when did you first start at Volunteers of America? About 13 years ago. Okay. Um, And so I know that you have done massive work to grow uh, Volunteers of America um, sort of the employee structure as well as just all the work that you've been doing during that time. And um, as you said, it was mostly um, child wear, child welfare focus when you started. And then um, around 2007, you sort of got into affordable housing. Um, and just uh, being associated with a lot of real estate work myself, I know that this... Um, it takes a lot to, I know you have to do a lot of um, sort of tax balancing and you've been applying for, you know, tax credits, affordable housing grants and things like that. And so, especially in 2007, what made you make the jump into this uh, 
affordable or supportive housing structure? So really what moving to VOA of Illinois allowed me to do was to develop something that intuitively mm-hmm. I always understood was really important. And this is sort of a funny story, but I, you know, again, as a, a young kid who was uh, seeing folks who were really struggling and homeless people and people in shelters and, and kids who were sort of being jostled around and families that were in pretty extreme poverty. One of the things that uh, always struck me is the difference between I have this really nice, comfortable home where I never have to worry about where I'm going to sleep or whether there's going to be food in the refrigerator. And that was usually something that was uh, substantially missing in mm-hmm. the lives of the people that I was you know, seeing in grammar school uh, and in the work I was doing, you know, even in high school in terms of volunteer work. And so I, I always had this sense that, well, if I, if I could just create a home right Mm -hmm. with all the things that make a home a home like this would make life better and I would go into these crazy exercises where I would like take the Sears catalog and I would sort of like engage in this fantasy of like circling all the things I would get for you know when I built Uh these homes I mean this was like literally this weird (laughs) fantasy as like a 12 year old kid and I would literally like very tangibly go into the Sears catalog Mm -hmm. and like you know imagine all the things I would need to create this really welcoming home Mm -hmm. and so In some ways, when I came to VOA, it was like that dream and that sense Mm -hmm. of how important that is came full circle Mm -hmm. because so much of what folks are struggling with is because they're not starting and ending their day Mm -hmm. with a place to belong and a stable place to start from. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, people think of housing as kind of a door and a place to keep your things. Uh, But it is really so much more than that. Mm -hmm. Um, It is the thing that sort of centers us as people. It is often the source of our stability and our dignity, and it gives us our place in the world. Mm -hmm. And it is the probably the single most important resource that we have that allows us to go out and pursue our dreams and and to do the things that are important to us as individuals. And and for children, it's such an incredible source of their structure Mm -hmm. and sense of security and sense of trust in the world. And so we realized that for so many of the people we were serving, whatever sort of immediate problem they may be coming to us with, um, that was usually the lack of really high quality and Mm -hmm. stable housing was always part of the mix. And so uh, when you look at that issue from a community perspective, Mm -hmm. it's a stock problem, right? There's really a lack of uh, really uh, an abundant stock of high quality, affordable housing. And so we said, okay, how do we begin to create solutions with that problem? Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was really how it began, uh, is to create great, wonderful communities Uh, for people to live in. And I say communities because we really thought of the places we were creating, the housing we were creating is not just doors and rooms, uh, but is really places and communities Mm -hmm. uh, that would support the people that were living there. Um, And so we, you know, we started primarily focusing uh, on veterans who were struggling in crisis first, kind of single, unattached male Mm -hmm. veterans, which was uh, the kind of biggest demographic Mm -hmm. Uh, of homeless veterans. And then we realized with our work that really the untold story of homelessness amongst veterans was younger veterans, female veterans, and veterans with children. And so then we started creating um, supportive housing for veterans with families and creating these real campus-style developments Mm -hmm. that could serve 
um, a pretty diverse population of veterans from single veterans to older veterans to female veterans to families, you know, and so most of our developments now, um, you know, serve families and we have like at Hope Manor too, about a hundred kids wow. who call that place home. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, so when I was uh, researching VOA, I saw that when they started in 1896, sort of one of their foundational mission statements was to go wherever we are needed and do whatever comes to hand. And so it sounds like when you started at VOA, you were really given this opportunity and the space to address this root cause that you had identified from a very young mm-hmm. age. With the Sears catalog, with the help right. of the Sears catalog. <laughs> um, yeah, I think when I was looking at uh, you know similar catalogs when I was in middle school, I was definitely not looking to... It was your Christmas <laughs> list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did that too. But, um, so, um, and then, so you started in 2007, and then by... Um, by 2014, you had not only Hope Manor 1, but Hope Manor 2, both fully leased and occupied. And so that's a lot of, um, that's just a lot of groundwork to cover in getting all of these. Are you, um, are you rehabbing facilities or are you finding um, already built structures when you start? So we have focused primarily on new construction. Okay. Because uh, number one, it's, uh, you know, we want to have this kind of place-based strategy. And so you kind of have a little bit more flexibility in terms of creating Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of ideal community setting and the ideal living spaces for the the target group that you have when you're starting with new construction. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we've really, most of our uh, early housing development, we've really partnered with the city of Chicago uh, because there is, there's, and certainly in certain parts of the city, there's a lot of vacant land that desperately needs to be filled. Mm -hmm. And so we were really kind of amplifying missions here by not only trying to create communities for the people living there, but how do you not only lift the people that you're serving in the housing, but how do you help lift communities by Mm -hmm. creating housing? And so it was really this kind of multiple, multi-tiered strategy, if you will, uh, from a mission perspective, to both lift people and lift communities in the process. And so that's one of the reasons that we really focused on new construction, because mm-hmm. we, we did want to also tackle this problem of vacant land. Mm-hmm. While I was uh, researching up on VOA, I noticed that you really focus a lot on community engagement and being a part of the communities that you're building. And I think that's really great. And um so you started in, well, I know that you had uh, developments in both Humboldt Park and Joliet. So were those, um, were there any differences amongst those communities that you had to balance? Well, I think it's safe to say that there's huge differences between Humboldt Park <laughs> uh, and Joliet. Uh, for where we built our Hope Manor Joliet campus uh, is in a fairly, what most people would experience is almost a rural part okay. uh, of Joliet. Mm-hmm. So the settings are extremely different. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go to our Humble Park campus, which is Hope Manor 1, it, it certainly has a pretty urban mm-hmm. feel to it. Uh, when you go to Hope Manor Joliet, it feels very rural. And, um, you know, we're almost like on rolling hills and it's, okay. you know, several <laughs> acres. And, yeah, very um, different I, I mean, you can, you can see other things uh, around us, but um, it's not like you can almost like, you know, reach your hand out the window and you're touching your neighbor. Right. Um, and, and, you know, we're not quite that close, even at Humboldt Park, but, but we're nestled in an urban setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that certainly creates different kinds of challenges. Humboldt Park is actually a remarkable community, mm-hmm. uh, led by uh, a wonderful alderman, Alderman Burnett. 
And uh, so, you know, we, we were there when it was still on the cusp of having uh, uh, some, some challenges, but um, we're really fortunate because we're really part, in Humble Park, we are, uh, you know, really benefiting from a resurgence, a tremendous resurgence uh, mm-hmm. of, of that neighborhood um, under his leadership. So, um, you know, we're, we're right on Franklin Boulevard. And mm-hmm. uh, again, we're, it, this was not necessarily by design, but what was ironic is in all of our Hope Manors, we're right next door to an elementary school. Oh, really? <laughs> it, you would think that we say, okay, we're going to build these, and in every situation, we can only pick a spot. <laughs> we're going to be right next door to an elementary school. Uh, but in all situations, even I, ironically in Joliet, right, where things mm-hmm. are not that close yeah. together, uh, the only thing that separates us from the elementary school is like a field, a little bit okay. of a sort of a wooded field. Uh, between our campus uh, and the local elementary school, and then both for other Hope Manors in Chicago, uh, we are we are next to schools, and we've seen that as tremendous opportunity for yeah. deeper engagement mm-hmm. uh, in the community. And so we really try and partner with these schools to make sure that we're great neighbors, mm-hmm. and that our presence is a resource to them, uh, and that they can be a good resource to the people that we're serving. Mm-hmm. So I think you probably had more of a handle on how to be, you know do good community engagement, how to best help these veterans, um, you know, from a social work perspective, but you're also like quickly becoming a developer, a landlord, um, really getting into the like nitty gritty of like tax law and how to deal with affordable housing standards in Chicago. So what was the learning curve like on all of that? Well, the learning curve is still steep. Yeah. <laughs> Every time we do a closing, uh, I, I feel like I experience a certain amount of brain damage because you get so deep into, because the low income housing tax credit, which is mm-hmm. the primary tool and resource that we've used for most of our um, affordable and supportive housing development is actually born out of IRS regulation. Mm -hmm. So it it comes with, you know, all of uh, that really heavy and uh, sort of deep legal and tax kind of law. And so uh, I I would not uh, even begin to suggest that I am I'm barely a novice mm-hmm. uh, in the sort of granular aspects of that. And we so we assemble a really strong team, mm-hmm. a project attorney and some financial consultants that really help you navigate right. uh, that piece of it. Um, but, uh, you know, it is, there are days where I'm looking at, you know, phase one and phase two environmental reports, or I'm looking at floor plans and, uh, you know, looking at sort of, um, uh, different types of flooring and what its ratings are and security film on windows. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, my social work degree didn't really prepare right. me <laughs> uh, for this kind of work. But uh, fortunately, um, when you do it for a while and you go through it a few times and you have great partners, yeah. uh, uh, it, it does start to become mm-hmm. uh, a little bit easier. and You develop an intuitive sense mm-hmm. uh, of kind of what's directionally at least uh, the right decisions. And then because, you know, we're the developer and the owner and the operator and the service provider in these developments, and I'm there at these places all the time and living essentially with mm-hmm. them and not in them as a resident, but but you living in them, there, yeah, yeah, in real time, you really do get a sense mm-hmm. for um, what, what in real world conditions works and what mm-hmm. doesn't work. So the next time you do it... Um, you go, okay, we're not going to do that again. Right. And <laughs> we're going to do something a little bit different. Or that flooring was great. This one wasn't. Mm-hmm. Or this, this, uh, what we've been really good at, um, I feel like I am an expert on bed bugs. Okay. I should say I feel like I'm an expert on preventing them. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> we've yeah. had next to no problems with that because oh, wow. we really did our homework. Yeah. 
uh, to make sure that we had really good strategies and really researched, you know, what are the right materials and things like that mm-hmm. to prevent that. Um, and also issues of security and what materials and products and design elements mm-hmm. work really well yeah. uh, with kids. Right. So, um, you know, our developments have become uh, really evolved and extremely responsive mm-hmm. to those kinds of issues. Yeah, that's great. I know that, um, you know, you can sort of get a sense for uh, building uh, development and closings, but also each building comes mm-hmm. with its own challenges. So I think um, what my social work degree has really where it did serve me well, though, was that I wouldn't have anticipated is, you know, how do you create uh, sort of a design that supports human interaction, mm-hmm. right? What what does right. what does a welcoming, supportive community look like in need? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that was where my social work background really did serve me well. Yeah. And so now I know that you guys are working on a new project in Inglewood, and it looks like it's going to be um, 33 apartments. Um, 36. In, 36 in um, a mixture of two and three flats. And so this um, is a little bit different from your other projects. So how did this come about? How did you decide on Inglewood? Um, how did you decide on this structure? So one of our commitments every time we um, began any development was uh, to make sure that we could do it responsibly mm-hmm. as a really and become a really good neighbor mm-hmm. uh, in the area in the community in which we were going to become a part. And uh, Inglewood, with our Hope Manor Two campus, was no different. Uh, we tried to get very actively involved uh, in the community as a good neighbor. Mm-hmm. And in the process of doing that, uh, I, I really did become particularly passionate and attached to that community and uh, all the unsung heroes and the untold uh, stories of incredible resilience and commitment uh, Mm -hmm. that existed uh, in uh, so many of the people that live and work in Inglewood who are uh, fighting and 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 working so hard to lift their community Mm -hmm. and uh, you know there's this great hashtag amongst uh, all the stakeholders there called Inglewood Rising. Okay. And uh, to actually see that happen and to, to get to be a part of it uh, is really inspiring. And so we started to think about our growth and development as an organization and said, you know, let's be a little more place-based okay. about our growth. Mm-hmm. And to try and say, instead of being in a lot of different places, let's try and be in a fewer places and kind of go deep. Mm-hmm. And uh, Inglewood was one of the places that we selected that we said we really want to go kind of deep and broad mm-hmm. here uh, and build on the success and the momentum that we had with our Hope Manor 2 campus there. And so Hope Manor Village mm-hmm. is an extension of that commitment and that vision, and it's physically an extension in many ways uh, of our campus there. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like we're trying to radiate in concentric circles out from the campus. Mm-hmm. And so many things that in retrospect, um, you know, look like they were these really complex, incredibly well thought out strategies uh-huh. really started from just walking around. Yeah. And uh, that was really what happened mm-hmm. uh, with Hope Manor Village is I was just walking around uh, our Hope Manor 2 campus and um, started counting all the vacant lots right. in the blocks around us. And, um, and then, you know, looking at the number of abandoned homes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and thought to myself, gosh, I, if I'm like a third grade kid, right, mm-hmm. and I just walk out my front door and, you know, to go to school, right, and almost every other 
uh, a thing I pass is either a vacant lot where right. something once stood but was taken, you know, mm-hmm. is, is no longer there, or something that is abandoned. What does that do to my psyche? Right? What, is, what does mm-hmm. that do to my sense of my place in the world? Yeah, it's and really so, demoralizing way to absolutely. start your day. And kids can start to internalize that stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like if the place I live doesn't seem to matter that much, then does it follow that I don't matter much? Right. And so suddenly that was the thing that really, really mattered to me mm-hmm. um, was that we need to help build up this community, not just for the sake of the community, but for what it says to the kids that are growing up here. Because they really, obviously, they matter and they're mm-hmm. so important and they're so gifted and we need to... Uh, create a community that reflects that, help create a community that reflects that. And so um, we we created this whole human-centered design process where we brought community members together and stakeholders together and said, okay, if this is the problem, right, all mm-hmm. these vacant lots and these abandoned homes, then what's the solution? Right. Yeah, so I know um, Inglewood, um, for those who maybe don't know, just a little background, um, they are a prominent neighborhood in Chicago that was really hit by a lot of uh, disinvestment and disenfranchisement, and then was especially hit um, sort of it's a financial crisis in uh, the early 2000s, and is currently the neighborhood with the most vacant lots in Chicago. Correct. And um, you know, listening to you talk, I um, really I caught when you said that you were getting all the stakeholders um, invested. I think that's really important because I've heard of you know some other uh, you know companies or people that are like this. You know, there's a lot of land. We could really do something about this. But when they're not asking the community what they want, um, those projects sort of end up falling flat. So I think it's really important that you guys have been um, working with the community as well. I think uh, what people have to be really careful about is uh, avoiding, I should say, both the appearance and, and the reality of, uh, like, parachuting in right, and deciding that you have all the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, p- everyone has something of value to contribute uh, in terms of an idea and a resource uh, to problems, but we have to make sure that we're not trying to substitute uh, always our judgment and our vision and our experience uh, for the lived experience of the people that are going to be most impacted positively or negatively mm-hmm. uh, by whatever solutions get put in place. And it was, we had this sort of set of criteria. Uh, for whatever the resulting strategy was. And one of the sort of key criteria was it had to be something that the community was really passionate about Mm -hmm. and what they really prioritized and felt was important. Um, And, you know, you can't, you can't sort of project that onto people. You really have to measure that against Mm -hmm. uh, the real feelings and attitudes uh, of folks that are, you know, living and working in the community. And does this make sense to you? And does this feel like something you can be passionate about? If you, just practically speaking, forget about the moral and Mm mission-based reasons why you need to uh, really be invested in the community and have uh, solutions be reflective of what the community wants. But you end up, you potentially end up building, you know, 30,000 square feet mothballs, right? I right. mean, if, if the community doesn't love it and support it and mm-hmm. feel like this is helping, um, some of those solutions can really fall flat. Yeah, and I can really tell that you've taken this to heart in your strategy as, you know, now you're doing these more two and three flats. And I think that's really reflective of how I know in Inglewood people um, really stake a lot on like knowing their neighbors and they don't necessarily want to be in like a big like high-rise building they want to have a much more community feel 
Um, and so I think that's really important as well. Are these um, new construction as well? So Homeander Village has uh, really three components to okay. it in terms of what the vision was. Uh, one was to bridge the gap between the need for and the availability of high quality, underscore high quality mm -hmm. affordable housing. Um, the second was to drive up the rate of home ownership uh, because, and this is probably in, somewhat intuitive, but worth pointing out that the higher the rate of home ownership in any community, the greater the sort of community efficacy outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. um, the more people you have of a long-term stake in the community, uh, oftentimes the more stable and the better the outcomes are uh, for that community. So home ownership was important. And then the third was, how do we create more community amenities that attract and keep families mm -hmm. uh, in a community. There's a lot, we did sort of a whole asset mapping exercise and there's just, there was a lot that we found. And I don't wanna say we like just VOA, like we were, we, right. we were parts of groups that helped uh, do this stuff. But um, there's a lot of things that in so many other communities you just take for granted as resources that exist. Uh, you know, places to sit down and eat, for instance. Right. Um, and that just don't exist. Uh, they, we call that, kind of a, a market perspective leakage, right? Mm -hmm. That these are resources that they have to leave Inglewood uh, to get. Mm -hmm. And so it was how do we bring some of these resources back so that people don't have to leave their community mm -hmm. to access some of those things. Um, so those were the, those were the three um, components. And so we focused the first strategy of bridging the gap between the need for and the availability of high quality affordable housing on the essentially the vacant lots mm -hmm. and to try and target the abandoned homes okay. as the vehicle to try and drive up home mm -hmm. ownership. Yeah. Um, so I know you said you wanted to underscore th the need for high quality um, low income housing. Is that just um, covering things sort of like the, the leakage you were talking about before? Or is it something more than that? So one of the nicest things, um, and I guess you might call it in colloquial terms sort of a backhanded compliment in some ways, but some of the nicest things that people have ever said when I've had them, when they've come and toured uh, uh, some of our campuses is, wow, this doesn't look like affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I both appreciate that statement and I cringe at it sometimes at right, the same time because unfortunately um, there is this sort of perception mm -hmm. uh, that's somewhat based in reality of what um, affordable housing looks like. Right. And uh, we worked really hard to make sure that affordable housing should be about uh, its accessibility to right. people who are making less money. It shouldn't be about the way that it looks. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I talk about. That's what I mean when I say a really high quality affordable mm -hmm. housing is, is housing that anyone would want to live in right. regardless uh, of, their, of their level of income. Because in reality, uh, the distinction between really poor quality housing and really unstable or no housing mm -hmm. It's not that far apart. Yeah. Um, you know, if you live in really, really poor quality housing, uh, number one, you're probably moving a lot mm -hmm. amongst those uh, sort of uh, really bad resources. Um, and just the quality uh, of that housing, mm -hmm. um, you know, can really have an incredibly negative impact, particularly on kids. And yeah. so um, that was really part of our mission was not just to create more affordable housing, but to mm -hmm. really create really high quality housing that lifted people, um, that really substantively contributed to their quality of life. Yeah. And so that's why we're so intentional mm -hmm. about the physical environments and about the way uh, people would be living in and experiencing that space. Yeah, just 
keep on, it sounds like you just keep returning to that focus of having a, a welcoming home environment, not just, you know, like a place to be, but a really like a welcoming home for people to have. And one of the things that we did in this human center design process was to, we did all these focus groups and uh, we, you know, we asked folks that, um, you know, were already living in Inglewood and maybe, you know, even some of our rental housing or some other rental housing. When you think about your family moving ahead, right, um, and achieving whatever your idea is of, a, of a, a, a dream for yourself and your family, what are the hallmarks and the characteristics of that? Mm-hmm. And uh, to your earlier point, somewhat lower density housing, right? So maybe mm-hmm. not something that's a multi-story uh, high density building. Um, so either a single family home or a two flat or a three flat, um, backyards, mm, garages, yeah. um, garages came up so often that in our earliest, uh, uh sort of, um, plans for Hope Manor Village, just, we gotta get a garage. We, gotta, we just have to have a garage because <laughs> I heard that too often and that's too important to people. And unfortunately, just from a, uh, space perspective, mm-hmm. uh, where these lots are, some of them just aren't quite deep enough mm-hmm. and wide enough, even, you know, when we're doing two flats and three flats right. to have garages that mm-hmm. accommodate, uh, two and three cars, but we were able to get carports. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, good, better, best. We got, mm-hmm. we got close. At least keeps the snow off your car. <laughs> right. But, but you know what it, 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 it establishes your space mm-hmm. and every gesture that you can make that distinguishes your place in the world, uh, from others, it creates something in the way of a different, a stronger sense of identity and, and increased self-esteem. And so, and the same with the backyard. So, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that these were built in a way that, um, you know, they really truly had uh, backyards was also really important. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I just want to shift a little bit. We'll talk just um, sort of about Volunteers of America more as a whole. Um, I'm sure that housing is not the only thing you guys are doing. So uh, what are some other uh, projects that you guys work on right now? Well, again, the three um, sort of main areas, uh, if you will, that, that we work in, I don't know if three is the right number is we still, uh, obviously have a strong and robust child welfare program. Mm -hmm. And that remains one of my key passions. I really Mm -hmm. consider myself a social worker and then a child welfare professional and then kind of everything else that I do. Um, and so we still do quite a bit, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of child welfare. Then there is all of our veterans work, which is this really comprehensive continuum that has sort of all of these different, Tentacles is probably the wrong word, <laughs> uh, but has all these different dimensions to it where we're serving, again, really families, we're serving mm-hmm. young people, we're serving older veterans, we're serving veterans with, you know, physical disabilities, mental disabilities, addictions, et cetera. So it's this, it's this very diverse population um, of folks we're serving in that work um, that really touches on a whole host of uh, uh, challenges and issues. And then we do um, a lot also uh, in terms of um, affordable and supportive housing for uh, seniors okay. and for disabled adults. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I always say the reason, one of the reasons I think I'm so tired uh, when I go <laughs> home at night um, is because we really serve people across the lifespan. Yeah. Sounds so like it. in our child welfare work, we literally may be the first people mm-hmm. uh, to take care of somebody, a child who is born mm-hmm. uh, and comes immediately to the child welfare system. And we may be picking that child up from the hospital. So really we're the first people to take yeah. care of somebody. Uh, and in um, our senior housing, uh, we often are the last people. Mm-hmm. Not that we celebrate people passing uh, right. on in our developments, but when they do at 95 or 96 mm-hmm. years old, uh, in some ways it means that they've been able to live uh, independently 
and with dignity and on their own terms mm-hmm. uh, till the very end, but, but independently while in community. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to us. And we find with our, in our work with seniors that that idea of living independently on their own terms, but with the strong sense of being a part of community uh, is so important to them. And, and again, and then all that stuff uh, in between. Yeah. So we have to be really effective generalists, mm-hmm. um, which is a term that often gets used sure. uh, in social work because you know, we're not uh, exclusively focused on one point in the lifespan right. or on one particular problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really uh, sort of cutting across the entire lifespan and on a whole host of issues, disabilities, yeah. addictions, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've definitely got the whole spectrum covered there. So being uh, volunteers of America, do you take uh, layperson volunteers? Well, you know, if I had a, a dollar for every time I have to explain what our name doesn't mean, uh, I'd probably have to do a lot less fundraising. So as you mentioned earlier, we were founded in 1896. Right. And when, when we were founded in 1896, a lot of words had have very different had very different meanings than they do today. Yeah, it's not surprising. And so the term volunteer back then meant people who were choosing uh, to sort of serve in mm. this ministry of service, and because uh, this was really meant to be a, a very um, uh, sort of American-born mm-hmm. uh, volunteer corps of service, mm-hmm. and uh, you know nowadays, unfortunately, that term has a very distinct meaning right. about getting paid or not paid. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so people sometimes hear the volunteer part of our name, and they think that we're an organization either comprised entirely of volunteers, or that our what we do is we recruit, train, and place volunteers mm-hmm. into different organizations. And really, neither of those two things okay. are true. Uh, the name just happens to be be one that's 125 <laughs> years old okay, yeah. and uh, it had a different meaning back then than it does now but the name you know again has real legacy so we've never changed it mm-hmm. um, but we are a human service organization that is made up of a combination of professional paid staff and mm-hmm. certainly like most human service nonprofit organizations uh, we supplement that with some volunteers but that name has nothing to do with how we're staffed okay. uh, or specifically <laughs> what we do mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I think the the work that you guys are doing, especially on this affordable housing, is really um, important work, especially with all the community engagement that you do. So if people um, want to get involved, either you know with their own uh, their own volunteering or um, just support, like how's the best way to support Volunteers of America? The best way to support us is to connect with us first and foremost, mm-hmm. and uh, we have a great team of folks who um, you know kind of talk to folks and figure out what are they passionate about? What kind of experience are they hoping to have? Are they looking to be a donor? Are they looking to be a board member? Are they looking to be a volunteer? Are they looking for a job? <laughs> we certainly have openings as well as you know most human service organizations. <laughs> and so p- the best place for people to start is probably to go to our website, which is www.voaillinois.org. Okay. Uh, and from there, they can begin to get a lot more information about some of our specific services and efforts and initiatives, and then um, to get connected to folks who can give them more information about what role uh, they would like to play in the organization in terms of how they'd like to get involved. Okay, that's great. I love when you just have a website to go to. It's very (laughs) easy. Um, And so I think I'm going to wrap up now with sort of the final question I ask all of our guests. And um, I know you talked about this a little bit earlier, but about you know managing uh, strategies for social workers, but if you were to give advice to um, 
sort of a younger person, maybe just starting out in sort of the social work field, um, what advice would you give to them? Well, the first thing I would say is if you are looking for a strategy to get wealthy, probably pick another field. Um, but that said, uh, whether you're an organization or uh, you are an individual, I do think that there's something to be said for money follows vision. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there is, if you are passionate about this work and you stay with it, you can certainly make a nice living at it. Uh, but you have to understand that the mission is part of the paycheck. Mm-hmm. And if you're not really passionate um, about that, the work can feel overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But when you see the mission as part of the reward, um, it, it can be uh, such a, an incredible way to live your life, to be able to make a difference in people's lives and to know that you're helping change things for the better. Mm-hmm. And that's the real gift and in, in the real blessing of this work. So I, I would encourage people um, to, to really explore this work, to get into this work, but to really take stock of their own motivations mm-hmm. because that's really going to determine um, how successful they are and how rewarding they ultimately find it. Yeah. Um, Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed talking with you today. And you as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago, as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solution Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.